It was supposed to revolutionize the world of finance, a digital currency that was controlled not by banks or governments, but by the people themselves. It would be faster than any other kind of financial transaction and completely safe from hackers. It would cost almost nothing. It all sounded too good to be true. And like anything that sounds too good to be true, it was. As it turns out, cryptocurrency has a larger and more damaging environmental impact than any other form of money. This is a story about unintended consequences. This is the story of greed over responsibility. And this is Green Street. Hello again, and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, public health and medical professionals, authors, engineers, activists, reporters, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what's really going on around you, how it affects your health and safety, and how you can protect yourself and your family in this increasingly toxic world. On our show today, we'll be talking about cryptocurrency. Now, you've probably heard about this new form of digital currency that's all the rage in financial circles. Investors are lining up to get in on the action, hoping to make gigantic profits. But as Patty mentioned in her intro, there's another side to the cryptocurrency story, and that is its extreme environmental impact. Now, you might wonder how a digital currency that's all online could have such a dramatic physical impact on the world. And we're glad you asked yourself that question because we're going to get the answers for you as we explore the whole issue with our friend Tony Ingrafia, a longtime engineering professor in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at Cornell University and one of the smartest people we have the privilege to know. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street right after Patty and the Green Street News. What do you have for us today? Okay, my first article is written by Elizabeth Gribkoff. It is entitled, Electronic Waste from Just This Year Will Outweigh the Great Wall of China. This was published in Environmental Health News. This year, each of us will throw out, recycle, or shove into a desk drawer an average of 16.8 pounds of old phones, laptops, toasters, and other electronics and appliances, according to the UN. A whopping total of 63.3 million tons of electronic waste worldwide. That waste can end up in massive digital dumps in the global south, exposing children who pick out valuable metals from the trash to more than 1,000 toxic substances. With just more than 17% of that e-waste recycled, advocates are urging producers and consumers to make sure those defunct electronics don't end up in landfills or collecting dust in the basement. As we transition to more renewable forms of electricity and transportation, which require metals like lithium and copper, experts say it's more important than ever that we recycle smartphones and batteries. The amount of e-waste we're creating each year has been on the rise. In 2019, 59 million tons of e-waste were created around the world, up more than 20% in just five years, according to the United Nations. Some countries, especially in Europe, have relatively successful e-waste take-back programs. But the amount of e-waste is growing so rapidly that even the growth of recycling that we are experiencing at a global scale is being outpaced. The Environmental Protection Agency estimates that Americans throw out more than 151 million cell phones each year. 
The agency says that recycling a million of those phones would recover 35,000 pounds of copper and 772 pounds of silver. Improper e-waste disposal brings with it also a host of environmental and human health concerns. Because of their small hands, children often work to recover valuable materials from digital dump sites in Asia and Africa, exposing them to heavy metals like lead and mercury and other toxic chemicals, according to the World Health Organization. And pregnant women who sift through e-waste at these sites are at greater risk of having a stillbirth or premature birth and of having babies born with neurodevelopmental issues linked to lead exposure. The United States has not signed the Basel Convention, which prohibits countries from sending hazardous waste abroad unless recipients have agreed to accept it. Like with many environmental issues, Europe is ahead of the United States in addressing e-waste. The EU requires electronic product manufacturers to design products so that they can be repaired and to put in place electronics take-back and recycling programs. EU citizens also have guaranteed access to free e-waste recycling programs, something not guaranteed in the U.S. These efforts have led to 55% of e-waste in Europe being properly recycled. While it's been illegal to dump e-waste in the United States since the 1970s, states have largely been left on their own to figure out what to do about mounting electronic waste. 25 states and the District of Columbia have put e-waste laws in place, but experts say a more comprehensive approach is needed. The right to repair movement has also gained momentum to ensure that customers have access to the software and other tools needed to repair their own cars and electronics, or to seek out independent and typically cheaper mechanics and repair shops to do so for them. For individuals wanting to recycle e-waste, the Consumer Technology Association has an interactive map that you can use to find out where to drop off your e-waste. There you go. I mean, we've been talking about this for a really long time, and apparently there has been very little progress in getting people to properly dispose of or um, repair, as is mentioned in this mm -hmm. article, mm -hmm. um, or just recycle these, their e-waste. Well, you know, the TV is filled with ads for the latest thing. You know, you got to have the latest phone. You got to, and and most people don't have the wherewithal or the the incentive to find a way to recycle their old their old phones. Uh, I mean, 151 million phones every year is a lot of phones, and. Uh, that's a, that's an outstanding number, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 150, and that's just in the United States. 150, 151 I, million cell phones a year that we throw out. Yeah. So, you know, it's great for the manufacturers. Every couple of years they come up with a new thing. You have to have it. Oh, i got to have this phone because it's got a, you know, it's got a camera that I can make Hollywood yeah. movies with. <laughs> okay. I'm so really. Yeah. So you know what? Just let's look at these numbers for one second again. So we throw out more than 151 million cell phones a year. But if we recycled just 1 million of those phones, just 1 million of the 151 million, we could recover 35,000 pounds of copper and 772 pounds of silver. Mm. You know, I hope this might inspire people to just look in their kitchen junk drawers and their, you know, their bottom of their desk drawer and find some old flip phones or, you know, something else that, you know, that they will never use again yeah. and find a, the proper way to recycle it. Yeah. Holy smoke. Okay, good. What else you got? Okay, so a second one. Um, this was written by Carrie Gillum and Alvin Chang. 
Carrie um, Gillum, she was on our yep, show a little while ago. She was. So here she is. And the title is Revealed. More than 120,000 U.S. sites feared to handle harmful PFAS forever chemicals. And this was published in The Guardian. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has identified more than 120,000 locations around the U.S. where people may be exposed to a class of toxic forever chemicals associated with various cancers and other health problems that is a frightening tally four times larger than previously reported. Colorado tops the EPA list with an estimated 21,400 facilities, followed by California's 13,000 sites and Oklahoma with just under 12,000. The facilities on the list represent dozens of industrial sectors, including oil and gas work, mining, chemical manufacturing, plastics manufacturing, waste management, and landfill operations. Airports, fire training facilities, and some military-related sites are also included. The APA describes its list as facilities in industries that may be handling PFAS. Most of the facilities are described as active, several thousand are listed as inactive, and many others show no indication of status. PFAS are often referred to as forever chemicals due to their longevity in the environment. Thus, even sites that are no longer actively discharging pollutants can still be a problem, according to the EPA. The tally far exceeds a previous analysis that showed only 29,900 industrial sites known or suspected of making or using the toxic chemicals. People living near such facilities, quote, are certain to be exposed, some at very high levels, end quote, to PFAS chemicals, said David Brown, a public health toxicologist and former director of environmental epidemiology at the Connecticut Department of Health. Brown says he suspects there are far more sites than even those on the EPA list, posing long-term health risks for unsuspecting people who live near them. Quote, once it's in the environment, it almost never breaks down, Brown said of PFAS. This is such a potent compound in terms of its toxicity, and it tends to bioaccumulate. This is one of the compounds that persists forever. Oil and gas operations lead the list of industry sectors the EPA says may be handling PFAS chemicals. A report by Physicians for Social Responsibility presented evidence that oil and gas companies have been using PFAS or substances that can degrade into PFAS in hydraulic fracturing or fracking, a technique used to extract natural gas or oil. The EPA said in 2019 that it was compiling data to create a map of known or potential PFAS contamination sites to help assess environmental trends in PFAS concentrations and aid local authorities in oversight, but no such map has yet been issued. PFAS chemicals are a group of more than 5,000 man-made compounds used by a variety of industries since the 1940s for such things as electronics manufacturing, oil recovery, paints, firefighting foams, cleaning products, and nonstick cookware. People can be exposed through contaminated drinking water, food, and air, as well as contact with commercial products made with PFAS. The EPA acknowledges there is evidence that exposure to PFAS can cause adverse health outcomes in humans. EPA officials have started taking steps to get a grasp on the extent of PFAS use and existing and potential environmental contamination, as independent researchers say their own studies are finding reason for alarm. Last year, for instance, scientists at the nonprofit Environmental Working Group issued a report finding that more than 200 million Americans could have PFAS in their drinking water at worrisome levels. EPA Deputy Press Secretary Tim Carroll said, we are identifying flexible and pragmatic approaches that will deliver critical public health protections, 
end quote. Linda Birnbaum, former director of the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences and an expert on PFAS, said the EPA compilation of more than 120,000 facilities that may be handling PFAS and other recent moves show the agency is taking the issue seriously, but more work is urgently needed. Quote, unfortunately, where PFAS are used, there is often local contamination, Birnbaum said. And while the EPA appears to be trying to get a handle on the extent of exposure concerns, progress seems very slow, end quote. The American Chemistry Council asserts that PFAS concerns are overblown. PFAS are vital to modern society, according to the American Chemistry Council. But public health and environmental groups, along with some members of Congress, say the risks posed to people by industrial use of PFAS substances are substantial. Four U.S. lawmakers, led by Rosa DeLauro, chair of the House Committee on Appropriations, wrote to the EPA Administrator Michael Reagan about their concerns regarding PFAS contamination of air and water from industrial facilities, saying, quote, For too many American families, this exposure is increasing the risk of cancer and other serious health problems, end quote. More than 150 advocacy groups also sent a letter to Reagan calling for urgent action to address industrial discharges of PFAS chemicals, noting that many of the chemicals have been linked at very low doses to serious health harms. One of the sites on the EPA list is the Clover Flat Landfill in Calistoga, California, a small community in the Napa Valley area that is popular for its vineyards and wineries. The landfill sits on the northern edge of the valley atop the edge of a rugged mountain range. Clover Flat has taken in household garbage as well as commercial and industrial waste since the 1960s, but over time the landfill has also become a disposal site for debris from forest fires. The mayor of the small city of St. Helena in Napa County said multiple streams across the landfill property, helping rains and erosions drive the chemical contamin... Okay, wait a second. Jeffrey Ellsworth, mayor of the small city of St. Helena in Napa County, said multiple streams crossed the landfill property, helping rains and erosion drive the chemical contaminants downhill into creeks and other water sources, including some used to irrigate farmland. He has been seeking regulatory intervention, but has not been successful. A small group of Napa Valley residents have been working on a documentary film about their concerns with the landfill, highlighting fears that exposures to PFAS and other contaminants are jeopardizing their health. Quote, the water is full of foam and looks soapy and smells funny, said 69-year-old Dennis Kelly, who lives on a few acres downhill from Clover Flat. His dog Scarlet has become sick after wading through waters that drain from the landfill into a creek that runs through his property. And for the last few years, he has suffered with colon and stomach cancer. Kelly said he fears the water is toxic, and he has noticed that frogs and tadpoles that once populated the creek are nowhere to be found. Quote, pollution is going to be what kills us all. End quote. Well, you know, the residents in Napa Valley who probably have the, the wherewithal and the finances to fight this are doing what people in those fence line communities really can't do. That's right. And most of this contamination is taking place in those fence line That's communities right. where they're living right outside the factory. There's no question that, once again, this is an environmental justice Absolutely. issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Almost everything we talk about is an environmental justice issue because industries and manufacturing plants put their facilities in areas where people won't fight them. Yeah. They don't have well, the wherewithal. 120,000 locations. I was surprised to see so many in Oklahoma. I wonder why I, I don't Oklahoma know. in the middle of nowhere. Oh, because, or... of, because of the oil and gas industry. Oh, of course. Yeah, okay. Of course. Fracking. Fracking, yeah. yeah. 
Okay, well, that solves that little mystery. All right, that's an unfortunate situation because the chemicals will last forever. They'll be there forever, and the oil and gas companies will pick up and go away, and, you know, they'll go make money somewhere yeah. else. I mean, in the article, it said there's more than 5,000 PFAS chemicals, but we've spoken to quite a few experts, even on this show, that say there's about 9,000. Yeah, so that's caught, almost twice as many. I caught that, too. Yeah. Mm. All right. What else you got? Okay. So a very interesting report just came out um, by Beyond Plastics, which is a nonprofit organization um, headed up by Judith Enk, um, who is former EPA head of Region 2 in, uh, in New York State that was under the Obama administration. So here it is. The new coal, plastics and climate change. As of 2020, the U.S. plastics industry is responsible for at least 232 million tons of CO2e gas emissions per year. This amount is equivalent to the average emissions from 116 average size, which is 500 megawatt coal-fired power plants. The U.S. plastics industry's contribution to climate change is on track to exceed that of coal-fired power in this country by 2030. At least 42 plastics facilities have opened since 2019, are under construction, or are in the permitting process. If they become fully operational, these new plastics plants could release an additional 55 million tons of greenhouse gases, the equivalent of another 20-size average-size coal plants. The health impacts of these emissions are disproportionately borne by low-income communities and communities of color, making this a major environmental justice issue. Although the plastics industry has long touted plastics recyclability, in truth, less than 9% of plastics are recycled, and new proposals for chemical recycling or advanced recycling actually have more in common with incineration, a major source of both climate emissions and harmful air pollutants. Most of these facilities spend vast amounts of energy catalyzing chemical changes designed to turn plastics into more burnable fuel. The burning of plastics made in the U.S. already releases an estimated 15 million tons of greenhouse gases each year. If we turn to these processes to handle plastic waste, the emissions impacts would be even greater. Okay, there have, we have discussed this, and there, there are two big industries that are on the horizon for the oil and gas industry as we force them to stop producing fossil fuel for energy and for, you know, fuel for cars and so on and so on. And we're, we're moving toward that, right? Everybody seems to be going there. But they're not giving up. So they're going to do this whole thing that we've already talked about, which is, which is carbon capture technology, right? Which is just, you know, a smokescreen yeah, for, producing, for producing more oil and gas mm -hmm. and plastics, and production of plastics, which which is just, you know, filling our world up. It's know? so amazing. To, I mean, the know. Mariana Trench, which is the deepest place in the ocean, has got plastics in it. You know, the whole world is moving in a wave in one direction. And along comes the oil and gas industry driving in the other direction as fast as they can. That's right. It's, it's just unbelievable. Right. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Like most people, cryptocurrency is something you've heard about but haven't yet become involved with yourself. 
You may know, for instance, that cryptocurrency is a new kind of digital money that's not controlled by any bank, government, or central authority. You may know that the crypto in cryptocurrency is because of the encryption process that is used to keep the money trail protected and private. And you may have heard that cryptocurrency is being mined and wondered what that means. And you may have heard that a few speculators have already made millions on things like Bitcoin, a form of cryptocurrency. But what you may not yet have heard about is the gigantic carbon footprint that is currently being created by this new digital money. How old power plants around the world are suddenly being activated, filling the skies with tons of pollutants and jeopardizing all the progress we've made toward making the world a cleaner place and gradually moving toward our climate goals. To learn more about this, we called on our friend Dr. Anthony Ingraffia, or Tony as he prefers to be called. Dr. Ingraffia is the Dwight C. Baum Professor of Engineering Emeritus and a Weiss Presidential Teaching Fellow at Cornell University, where he has been since 1977. He holds a B.S. in Aerospace Engineering from the University of Notre Dame, an M.S. in Civil Engineering from Polytechnic Institute of New York, and a Ph.D. in Civil Engineering from the University of Colorado. We began our discussion by asking Tony and Graffia if anybody had foreseen the kind of environmental disaster that would accompany cryptocurrency. Here's our interview with Tony and Graffia. Some of us saw the problem coming, so let me tell you what the problem is. Uh, the process of what is called cryptocurrency mining currently requires very, very, very large amount of computing as with computers, as with special purpose supercomputers. And unlike the computer on your desk or your iPhone, which uses very little electricity, when you gang together, collect thousands or tens of thousands of these special purpose high performance supercomputers, they draw an enormous amount of electricity. And just as importantly, they create a lot of heat. And therefore, the rooms in which these thousands of supercomputing modules reside have to be air conditioned. Mm -hmm. So most people are familiar with how many tons of air conditioning they have in their house. You know, typically 12 tons, 24 tons would cool a house. We're talking thousands of tons or tens of thousands of tons of air conditioning to keep these supercomputers cool enough to continue to operate to, to do the software calculations that are involved in what's called cryptocurrency mining. So how does that relate to the environment? Well, electricity. <laughs> how do you generate the electricity that's required in this process? Well, how do you generate electricity to light the light bulbs in your house or heat your house or heat your hot water? It can come from a variety of sources, some of which are what we now call green and renewable. Others we call dirty and non-renewable. So if a particular facility, which is mining cryptocurrency, is using many, many, many megawatt hours of electricity per week or per day in some cases, it's very important to know where that electricity comes from. Because if it's dirty electricity coming from a fossil fuel source, it's climate change exacerbating and it's environmental harm exacerbating for all the reasons that your listeners know about fossil fuel use. Mm -hmm. 
Clear so far? Absolutely yeah. clear. That's yeah. the connection. Yeah. The connection is where does the electricity come from? Wow. Okay. So, okay. next question. So, how different <laughs> is this? Is this much more electricity than required for those data storage centers where we're storing, you know, gazillions of pictures and all this stuff from our phones and and so on. And we have these data storage centers around the world. And it seems to be the same problem that it requires enormous amounts of air conditioning to keep these computers running in a in a, a relatively cool space. And that's just getting worse and worse. Um, you know, we're we're building more and more of them and, and expanding the ones that already exist. This is on top of that. We're talking about a new source here. Yes. So, so similarities and dissimilarities. Great question, Patty. So similarity is that by order of magnitude of electricity use, a very large, very large data center might be using the same amount of electricity as a moderate sized cryptocurrency center. So it depends upon which ones you compare, mm -hmm. but there's similarity there. The dissimilarity is one can make an argument that a data center is public serving. That is, it's mm -hmm. storing your photographs. It's storing the data from your bank. Uh, it's uh, serving government enterprise. Whereas cryptocurrency mining, as it's currently practiced, is a private enterprise. It's not public serving. The companies that own the mining facilities are typically privately held investment firms. And they're in it for the profit. They're not public serving. They're not a public utility. They're not generating electricity in general that is going to the grid to light the lights in your house and heat your hot water. So there are similarities and there are differences. And obviously there are gray areas. What really is public serving is, is the fact that cryptocurrency exists and is being used increasingly around the world for financial transactions of all kinds there are cryptocurrency ads that are currently running on TV that weren't running a week ago, encouraging people to use a cryptocurrency facility or, or activity in their personal life. So is the existence of cryptocurrencies and their use public serving? And if it is, how do you weigh the cost benefit analysis of it might be public serving for a small segment of the society, but from the point of view of climate change exacerbation, it's hurting all seven and a half billion of us. You make the call. That's an ethics question. Yeah. That's how deep this gets. Yeah, this is this is not for the greater good. Okay. No. But obviously we started from ground zero because cryptocurrency is a relatively new thing. Is this going to continue at this rate? And and if so, how is this going to how is this going to work? Well, a couple questions there, and they're both good. It, it, yes, it's relatively young, um, measured in years. I don't know the, the exact year that the whole process started. One person started it, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and it might have been five, six, seven years ago. I'm not sure. So it is young. Is it growing? Absolutely. Up until about two years ago, uh, about 80 to 90% of all the cryptocurrency operations on the face of the earth were being performed in China, um, very little, scattered around a couple of other countries, some of which would be surprising, <laughs> countries you wouldn't expect to be involved in something like this. 
But in about two years ago, the Chinese government said, wait a minute, we're not going to do that anymore. We don't have control over cryptocurrency by definition. Cryptocurrency is meant to be a private form of currency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in a communist society, you don't have private things. Right. So cryptocurrency operations have been effectively banned in China. And what happened is that it overflowed around the world, mostly oh. to the U.S. of A. I see. So we had a phenomenon where tens of thousands of these high performance supercomputing modules were leaving China because they were purchased by investment firms in the U.S. and deployed in what I call private power plants. Okay. Wow. okay. So the second part of your question, is it growing? Yes. Uh, how many such power plants are currently operating in the U.S.? A dozen, maybe. One in New York State. But there are proposals to refire, to restart currently abandoned or mothballed power plants for the specific purpose of becoming private power plants just for the use of cryptocurrency mining. And that takes us back to the issue of, oh, so you're generating electricity from these power plants for a private purpose. Is that electricity dirty? We wouldn't be having this conversation, in my opinion, if all the cryptocurrency mining operations on the face of the earth took an oath. And the oath is we will use only green electricity that we ourselves generate. Here's mm -hmm. another complexity. Mm -hmm. There are cryptocurrency mining operations that are claiming that they're green because they are buying green energy from the grid. Think about that for a minute. Is that the best use of green energy? We don't have enough of it right now, right? right? Yeah. We really like to run our entire industrial complex, our entire residential complex, our entire transportation complex on green energy. But if it's being diverted for private use for a profit-making enterprise, in my opinion, that's a really stupid way to use a very, very scant resource at this point. But if these facilities were to say, we're going to build our own wind farms, our own solar farms, we're going to build our own hydroelectric dams, and all the electricity going in to our computers and our air conditioners will be green as can be, fine. It's their money. Yeah. They're yeah. not distracting. You know, it, it, from another point of view, is, is that a good use of capital investment? It's their capital investment. It's not That's yours. Right. It's, it's not, not taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, dollars. so let me ask you this question. So are we talking about uh, about bringing back some of these shuttered coal plants and 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 yes. really? Okay, yes. coal and gas yes. and oil they're they're all being yes. brought back to serve these private yes. private industry. Yes. Wow. Yes and yes. Wow, wow and wow. So yes, there is a facility that's already up and running in Pennsylvania that is using what they call waste coal, uh, coal that was judged to be of too low a quality to actually be burned to generate electricity for the public good. And a company has purchased that former facility and is burning waste coal to mine cryptocurrency. Oh my God. There is a facility 25 miles from where I'm sitting in upstate New York, which had been a coal-fired power plant it went out of operation about 10 years ago, was shuttered, put into mothballs. Private investment firm bought it up for pennies on the dollar because it was basically worthless. 
and got a grant from New York State to build a natural gas pipeline to the plant. And they restarted the plant a few years ago with the alleged purpose of becoming a public service, a utility. In other words, they had taken an old coal-fired power plant, refired it with natural gas, and they wanted to create electricity for the grid. They did that for about a year or so, and then pulled a fast one, my words. They then applied to New York State to say, ah, we're changing our business model. We don't want to be a public utility anymore. We want to be a pseudo-public utility. We want to spend most of our electricity crypto mining, and a little bit of it will still go out to the public good. Wow. So so you really so can't shut us down because we're obviously a, a public good. Right. But wait a minute, you, you lied. Yeah. <laughs> you got a permit. <laughs> you, got a, you got a grant from the state. They got a grant because they said they were going to yes. be a public utility. It was very, very, yes. very. Taxpayers that's dollars. Right. What? Taxpayers You know that they were, they were sitting around the boardroom and figuring out this strategy and. Yeah. yeah. Oh, those dummies in Albany can't see through our business plan. <laughs> wow. we'll, we'll pull fast when they're looking left and we're going right. Zig and Zach, right? You're listening to Green Street with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is Dr. Tony Ingrafia, former professor and teaching fellow at Cornell University. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and what's worse in this specific instance, I don't want to be too New York centric here, but the same issues are going to arise Mm-hmm. At different levels and different rates around the world. Yeah, this particular facility is, to use your words, Doug, growing rapidly. It it has a, a capacity of generating 106 megawatts of electricity, which by modern standards is not large. You know, a modern large nuclear power plant generates ten times that much, a thousand megawatts, but it's not small either. Mm. Okay, and they're using natural gas, and they're using a generator that was a remnant from when the plant opened in the 1950s. Mm. So it's ancient technology. It's about the, what I've done the calculations, it's the dirtiest possible way to do cryptocurrency mining, because it's the least efficient way mm. of doing it. It would be better for them to be burning coal again. Oh, God than for them to be burning natural gas in this plant. That's how dirty this plant is. Mm. Some legislators have proposed moratoria uh, for such efforts in New York State. Of course, the the barn door is open. Mm. (laughs) This plant is already in operation, but it needs an air permit, what's called an air permit, from the New York Department of Environmental Conservation. Its per- current permit, which was issued when they claimed they were going to be public utility, mm-hmm. expires. And they're applying for a new permit, and they haven't changed their tune. And so the New York DEC has to make a decision, which will obviously be influenced by politics, as to whether to allow them to continue to operate in their current condition, or whether DEC will shut it down and say you can't operate or you can operate, but under these restrictive conditions or fill in the rest with politics because money talks, as you know, sure. money talks and, everything. and there's a lot of money involved. Oh, here. sure. One coin, one Bitcoin. This place happens to mine Bitcoins. It's a form of cryptocurrency. 
is currently worth close to $60,000. And the last time I looked in the last month, they had mined about 80 coins. So you do the math, 80 times 60,000, that's you know half a million dollars worth of- Bitcoin. Bitcoins that mm-hmm. they created by burning natural gas and running those computers at our climate change expense. Well, I was going to ask, what options does government have? And, and does this fall primarily under state control or is this something that we need that we need federal action on? Well, it's always a great question. <laughs> Anything having to do with fossil fuels. It's it's so obvious that the federal government should step in and yeah, they need say, to. look, here, here are the requirements for safe operation. But as in all things fossil fuel, it falls to the states, and then you have a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the usual uh, distribution of pros and cons among the states, uh, depending upon how much of this is actually happening in the state and the political influence of the relevant lobbies. So it's mostly going to be state. And in places like New York or California, where you have hopefully reasonably progressive and climate sensitive regulation, you would say, here's my example. So you want to mine Bitcoins in New York state. Okay. And you want to do that by providing electricity of your own doing. Here is the limiting number. I'm going to give you a number and then I'll explain what it is. The number of pounds of CO2E that we're going to allow you to emit into the atmosphere per megawatt hour you're using. That's the controlling number. And I'm going to make that point as clear as I can next Wednesday to all the politicians and regulators in Albany because that's the control. When New York State decided that it really needed to shut down all the coal-fired power plants, they couldn't legally say, if you're burning coal, it's illegal, shut down. They can't do that. But what they could do is say, we're going to limit how much CO2E we're going to permit you to put into the atmosphere per megawatt hour of electricity. And the coal-fired power plants could not meet that Mm -hmm. criterion because they're too inefficient. Mm-hmm. They could do the same thing with this. They can say, hey, yeah, power plant on, on Seneca Lake, 25 miles from where I'm sitting. That's the least efficient, most dirty way possible of mining Bitcoins. So we're going to tell you, you can either clean up your act, get rid of your old equipment from the 1950s, and invest a few million dollars in modern, high-performance, high-efficiency equipment, and by the way, generate all your own electricity or you don't get your permit renewed. Mm-hmm. That's my wish. That's what I'm going to recommend when I do testimony next Wednesday. Wow. But I'm not a politician. I don't carry money bags to Albany. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we understand that. So I was very intrigued to see that Elon Musk, who's not usually on my, my favorite people list, uh, came out and, and said, look, we're not going to accept Bitcoin uh, if you want to buy a Tesla. And I'm wondering if there's not a um, an opportunity here and a and a a growing concern among consumers to put a little pressure on on companies not to accept Bitcoin because of its in terrible environmental footprint. 
or they will only accept certain kinds of Bitcoin currency that they know to be produced in the greenest possible way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that means mm-hmm. public awareness, right? Public education, which is what we're doing right here. Yeah. And then a, a, an appropriate legal and regulatory response state by state. And that's where New York is right now. Yeah. The, the greenest possible way would be for them to create their own energy source using renewables. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And offsetting is not permitted. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Offsetting. Yeah. No, that's not, that's, no, that's, that's cheating. Yeah. You can't say we're green because we're, we're paying somebody else to be green. Exactly. Right. No, everybody has yeah. to be green at this point. Exactly. In time. We're out of time. We're out of time. To transfer, you know, you, you can't buy indulgences for your sins anymore. That. Martin Luther told us that, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, we had somebody on a couple of weeks ago talking about carbon capture and, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a a huge problem as well. Um, But here it's like, you know, they're just really pulling the wool over a lot of the public's eyes because, you know, they're just, you know, making it sound, first of all, it sounds good, right? Carbon capture. (laughs) Oh, sure. It sounds good. Sounds like, wow, they're going to do that. Fossil fuel industry is going to do that. Why would they do that? Oh, wait a second. There must be something else to this story. Um, yeah. But it seems crazy to me when we are struggling with this impact of climate change that we're not just, just saying no to all fossil fuels. That's it. You can't do well, it. Patty. I know. I, agree with, I, agree with you I know. I mean, here we are. Here we are negotiating, much. negotiating. Well, you can do this if you do this. You can do this if you do this. You can do this. They're just going to they're going to take advantage of it. And like you say, bring their money bags to Albany, bring their money bags mm-hmm. to, to Washington. Well, but Patty, I think I think Tony's point, it's well taken is, look, we're not saying you can't do this. We're not saying you can. we're just saying you can't do this with such a heavy uh, carbon footprint. Exactly. If, if you want to do this, if you want to go ahead and make billions of dollars making your own money by mining Bitcoin, that's fine. But you've got to do it in a way that's completely carbon neutral or you know, at least carbon neutral, let's say. No, that's that's my position. I don't, I'm an engineer. I'm not an economist. I'm not a global financial financial guru. I don't care whether cryptocurrency succeeds or doesn't kick or doesn't succeed. It's yeah. not part of my life. It will never be part of my life. I'm only concerned about the things we're talking about. As you just eloquently said, Doug, what are the climate change impacts? Yeah. Are we talking about something that's eminently possible? I mean, could they come back and say, geez, we're not, we don't want to take 42 acres and build a solar farm. How reasonable is it to say you need to go with green energy? Depends upon how large an operation they want. So yeah. if they want a hundred megawatt operation, um, <laughs> that's uh, just, uh, let me do a quick calculation, hundred megawatts. That would be something like um, 50 very large wind turbines operating okay. uh, on okay. their site. Uh, okay. What would it cost to build a 50 wind turbine wind farm? <laughs> $100 million. Well, um, you know what? They're the ones that want to bet on, on Bitcoin. Exactly. Yeah. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be betting on Bitcoin. No. Do you run your numbers? Show us your business plan. And the, the, these companies are saying they're going to be around forever. Cryptocurrency is not going to go away. It's going to continue to grow. They want to continue to operate for foreseeable future for decades. So amortize your investment. 
Go off and build your own wind farm. Go, go off and build your own solar farm and more power to you. I see that Greenage is, is claiming that they're going to build a five megawatt farm, a solar farm. But okay. that's, that I'm doesn't seem to be anything. I'm glad you brought that yeah, up. Let's, let's okay. Yeah, let's joke about that. When I saw that, I, I practically laughed myself off the seat. So let me give you some facts and figures because I actually ran the numbers. Okay. I'm bringing up my uh, calculation here. Here you go. So the, the facility we're talking about, Greenage, owned and operated by the firm called ERM, uh, currently has a maximum capacity of 106 megawatts of electricity. I'm reading directly from their report. Um, we want to put up to 15 megawatts of solar farm on our facility. Now, first number is they have 106 megawatts being generated by burning natural gas. They want to offset that with a 15 megawatt solar farm. Okay, so right away, any idiot can see 15 a problem. a lot less than 106. <laughs> but, and then they claim in their own report that will reduce our emissions by 15%, right? 15 megawatts versus 106 right. megawatts, that's a 15% reduction. But to show you how ignorant these people are about fossil fuels versus renewables, as you know, the sun doesn't always shine, especially in upstate New York. <laughs> so a 15 megawatt solar farm is equivalent roughly to about a two megawatt facility. Two, not 15, two. <laughs> so they'd be reducing their emissions, not by 15%, by about 2%. Mm. So okay. it's a drop in the bucket. It's a slap in the face. It's an insult. They don't, they literally do not have the technical capacity to do their own calculations correctly. Mm. Wow. But it's, it's all, all PR, right? It's all yeah. to make themselves sure. look good. Look, look how great we're doing. We're reducing our, our footprint by 15%. Yeah. Well, even 15% um, isn't something to, that I would. I, I was going to bring that up yeah. too. I mean, 15% is great, but gee whiz, guys, we have to, we need to see a reduction of 80, 90%. Exactly. Look what the law, look what the CLCPA law requires, right? All green and 70% electricity generation within eight years, 70% green electricity. So if they are, if the DEC decides, and this is a decision DEC has to make with the influence of the governor, of course, if the DEC decides that this particular facility must conform, must conform to the CLCPA law, then 70% of the electricity they use to generate their own electricity eight years from now has to be green. Which means they they can't burn they can't burn natural gas for more than thirty percent of their electricity, but they're trying to squirm their way out of that. They're saying, "Oh, wait a minute, we already met CLCPA requirements because our emissions today are 80 percent less than they were in 1990." Think about what I just said. Hmm. This is a firm that bought this shuttered power plant in 2012. It did not own the power plant in 1990. In 1990, the power plant was burning coal to generate electricity for the public good. They come along, refire it with natural gas for private gain, and they want to take credit for an actual reduction in emissions. <laughs> Can you squirm your way out of that one? Ethically, oh, morally, give, logically? They're going to try. Got to give them credit for creativity. Sure. <laughs> 
Uh, Tony, just for our audience, could you just uh, talk a little bit about the CLCPA, what it is and what it says? Uh, CLCPA is an acronym for Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. The last word is key. It's a law. It went into effect on January 1st last year. And that law says New York State shall, through the actions of the various administrations, like the Division of Environment, Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, the New York Power Authority, the Public Service Commission, all those things that operate out of Albany for the public good, they must all do whatever they must do to meet the objectives of this new law. So let me tell you what those objectives are. 70% of all electricity generated in the state must come from renewable energy by 2030. 100% of all electricity generated in the state has to be green by 2040. 85% of all greenhouse gas emissions, compared to the 1990 emissions, we have to have an 85% reduction in all greenhouse gas emissions from all sources by 2050. And by 2030, we have to have reduced emissions by 40%. Those are very aggressive, very good climate goals. And what we're talking about today, cryptocurrency mining as it's currently practiced with its very large expenditure of electricity from non-renewable, non-green sources is smack dab in conflict with the CLCPA in New York. Yeah. I mean, that, that new law actually requires them to look at every single step in the energy, energy generation process. I'm, yes. Yeah. Every single step. Every from where single it comes step. Where it's used. Exactly. Mm. Well, it, that would that would seem to give the agencies of New York State free reign to come back to these companies and say, look, guys, we know this is what you want to do, but we're under we got a law here in case you didn't know. And we can't approve your request for a, a per, an air permit because, you know, it flies in the face of of the current law. So figure out something else and come Doug, back. We'll Doug, 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 Doug. Yeah. You're not an yeah. attorney. You're not an attorney. I can tell. <laughs> so when 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 this particular company applied to the New York DEC, for an air permit, it wasn't a new air permit they were applying for. They already had an air permit from the time they were operating as a coal-fired, as a natural gas-fired power plant for the public good. They applied for a renewal, and they're claiming their lawyers have formally claimed to the New York DEC that because they're only asking for a renewed air permit, they're grandfathered. Oh, the law won't apply to them. Well, you know, lawyers can say what they want. Yeah. But, uh, so this, we have lawyers too. Yeah. This this goes to either a governor's edict or a DEC decision that will be litigated. Mm. Uh, and in the meantime, they'll probably, if their lawyers are as good as I suspect they are, uh, they'll get a stay. Sure. Continue to operate until this yeah. goes through the courts. And in the meantime, since they have figured out how to get away with it. There are no fewer than, let me see, I've got a map here. One, two, three, four, five other shuttered, formerly mm. large coal-fired power plants in upstate New York mm. that could also wind up doing cryptocurrency mining. And collectively, um, taking into account the one that's already in operation and the other five, 
That's over 2,000 megawatts. That's the equivalent of two large nuclear power plants. Mm. Could be pumping out greenhouse gases for cryptocurrency mining. Mm. Could someone explain to me the benefit of cryptocurrency? I mean, who, who is this benefiting? Just uh, You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so not- You're gonna have to ask somebody else. It's not gonna benefit <laughs> us. I mean, the, the three of us speaking on the, you know, right no, it's, now. It's financial speculators who believe that they can, first of all, the whole idea of blockchain technology, which is behind this, has been kind of floating around for a while. It has a lot of great uh, aspects to it, particularly that uh, there's a record of every transaction that's ever made, but it really hasn't caught on in the way that I thought it might when I first heard about it. And, and now I'm beginning to see one of the reasons why it hasn't caught on is because of this tremendous environmental footprint and they can't figure out a way to, to, to get around it. These guys are in a rush to make money. Make no mistake. They don't want to wait three years to build build a, a, a green power plant or, oh. you know, or go through, you know, creating a wind farm with all the necessary uh, requirements for that. They want to they want to have something that can start generating power tomorrow so that they can get in on this and make a, a ton of money. That's the whole point. It serves no other purpose uh, that I know of. But I could be wrong, of course. Frequently am. <laughs> well, Tony, this is really fascinating. What haven't we covered that you'd like to make sure that we include in this show? So we covered this notion of offsetting. We covered the notion of, of stark inefficiency. We've covered the idea that uh, this particular plant and other plants, since they were formerly public serving power plants, somehow have carte blanche to get in yeah. under any new regulations. Yeah. Some sort of grandfathering. We covered what the CLCPA in New York, and by the way, New York mm -hmm. is not the only state that has similar laws on the books, mm -hmm. um, and, and how there's probably going to be litigation, and that litigation is going to take time. And I think the key point that we've made a couple of times already in this show is that we're running out of time. Yeah. yeah. That's what the scientists say. I mean, 2030, that, that year 2030 does not appear in the CLCPA law randomly. It's because the people who wrote the law were listening to the climate scientists who said that we have, we have to have completed, not started, completed major rehab right. of the US energy system by 2030. Right. right. We have to have completed it by 2030. Yeah. Wow. Can't wait till 2029 and say, whoops, we missed, <laughs> we better hurry up because every year that you delay means you have less time to do more. You've been listening to Green Street with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been Dr. Tony Ingraffia, former professor and teaching fellow at Cornell University. This is the point in our weekly show when Patty usually answers questions from our listeners about environmental health concerns, but unfortunately we've run out of time this week. If you have an environmental question for Patty, anything from cleaning products to water filters to air fresheners, dry cleaning, paint, carpeting, baby furniture, wireless radiation, anything like that, please drop us a line at greenstreetradio.com and we'll try to answer your questions on the air on our next show. 
And if you missed any part of today's program, you can always catch it again on our website, www.greenstreetradio.com, where you can submit your questions for Patty and also sign up for our newsletter. In case you missed it last week, our guest was investigative reporter Sharon Werner, who has the inside scoop on what's happening at the EPA and why the agency that's supposed to be protecting us is protecting the chemical industry instead. Really great interview with Sharon Werner. I hope you'll check it out. That's going to do it for our show today. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.